suspected that they can't trust Paul to teach them the truth about Jesus and the truth about how to be reconnected to God. And so Paul writes them a stern letter. And in all of his letters, uh, he starts off with this, what you used to do when you were a kid, a line that would say like, to Sarah, from Kelly, and then you write the thing. He starts off by that in the beginning to the church. And normally he would tell them all the things he was excited about. And every other letter in the Bible that Paul writes, he starts off with a section where he congratulates them, where he encourages them. In this section, he starts off with verse 6, and it's not encouragement. So I want to read it to you and let us submit to God's word. It says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ, and you are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and they are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or even if an angel from heaven should proclaim a gospel other than the one that we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than that what you accepted, Let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. This too is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Those words, Jesus, frighten me, and so well they ought. Forbid it, Lord, that I should preach anything other than your gospel. But I do pray, as the Apostle Paul prayed in Ephesians, that I would declare it fearlessly and boldly in every opportunity I'm given. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is from first to last, which saved a wretch like me, which is greater than all our sin. Would you soften hearts to hear your gospel? Would you give faith this day? We pray in Jesus. Amen. Do you guys know what what October 31st of this year is? Do you know what October 31st of this year is? Well, you pagans know it's Halloween. (laughs) But the real Christians in the room recognize that October 31st, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. On October 31st, 1517, a Catholic monk named Martin Luther posted a list of 95 theses for academic debate. And he posted them on a cathedral door in Wittenberg, Germany. The academic debate was to take place between scholars at the university where Martin Luther taught uh, Bible and philosophy. Martin Luther, uh, there's nothing necessarily special about him. He was just a regular uh, guy. Uh, He grew up in Germany in a mining town. And thanks to his uh, father's successful mining business, Martin Luther was able to get an education. He was able uh, to learn to read and write. He went to college um, and uh, was able to graduate there with his master's in 21, at 21 years old. And he went to start working on a law degree. 
He was pumped to start working on this law degree. And like every college student, he avoided his parents at all costs. And he didn't come home unless he needed something. And I'm sure he didn't call. And I know there's some of you in here who are still waiting on that sophomore to call for something other than more money. Well, Martin Luther put it off till he couldn't anymore. And he went home to see his folks. And on the way back to college, he gets stuck in a a thunderstorm in this enormous lightning microburst. And lightning starts to hit the ground so close to him that it actually drops his body to the ground. He gets kind of shocked by proxy. And they are laying on the ground with his body still tingling with the electric energy that has filled the air. He cries out in the words that his, his parents' faith has given to him. And he cries out to his family's patron saint, Saint Anne, the patron saint of minors. And he says, Saint Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. Can we just be honest? Anybody ever made a deal like that with God? Maybe you didn't say I'll be a monk, but you were like, Jesus, if you will just get me out of this speeding ticket, I promise the next homeless guy I see on the street corner, he's getting a $100 bill. Jesus, if you will just, if you will just let me pass, let me just pass college algebra. Just let me pass college algebra and I promise I'll take three religion courses next semester to make it up to you. Like, let me, uh, let my kid uh, just make the sports team and let me uh, get through this class. Uh, If you'll get my kid out of trouble, I'll start volunteering at the animal rescue mission. I know I've tried hundreds of times to make deals with God, to find my keys, to get out of a jam, to stay alive. Well, Martin Luther, in that moment, scared to death, cries out to St. Anne and, uh, and promises he'll become a monk. And he lives through this lightning storm and he comes out on the other side and he keeps his word. In his mind, becoming a monk is his greatest bargaining chip because monks, in his mind, in his day and time, and, and this uh, kind of early medieval Christianity, late medieval, middle Christianity, uh, medieval Christianity, uh, monks are the serious ones. They're the ones who make God happy. They're the real Christians, the righteous saints. Everybody else is just kind of like, if any of the rest of us get into heaven, it's because the monks did a good job. And so he says he'll become a monk because that's the best thing he knows to offer in exchange for his life. And so he becomes a monk. And there in the monastery, he dedicated himself with near neurotic vigor to doing the right thing, to being the best monk, the best Christian in the world. According to the teachings of his day, the teachings um, of the Roman church at that time, you were forgiven by God based on your serious intentions to be good, combined with your best efforts at doing the right thing, and on God's grace covering all your failures as you confessed your sin to the priest and you performed the penance that the priest gave back to you. And so it was a combination of being really serious a combination of trying really hard and then a combination of trusting that God uh, would cover you um, with, through the sacraments of confession, penance, of uh, baptism, of the Lord's Supper, of marriage, and of, um, of unction, which is just a great word. Uh, Martin Luther worked harder than any of the monks because he was haunted by the fact that he might forget to confess a sin and if he had forgotten to confess it to another one of the priests who would then absolve him of that sin, then that sin was still retained. And so he worked tirelessly to confess every single sin he could remember. Every time he remembered a sin, he would go and find another priest in the monastery there uh, to forgive him, to, to confess it to him. And the brothers did not get pumped about this. In fact, they were frustrated about this because they would get woken up at three o'clock in the morning to hear Martin Luther confess that he just remembered stealing two pieces of bubble gum when he was six years old. 
He would wake him up to confess the smallest sins and the biggest sins, sins from when he was a kid and sins from when he was yesterday and sins that happened while he was dreaming. And, and the, the, the brothers there got frustrated with him and they tried to encourage him. They said, just, just don't, just worry about the big sins, Luther. Like, chill out, man. Don't take this so serious. But Luther was a Bible professor and Luther understood that a man could be damned for cursing at someone just as much as he could for killing that person. And so he was always wondering if he had been good enough, serious enough, humble enough, sad enough, sorry enough for God. He wanted to know if his scorecard with God was good enough. And maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you come in this morning. Maybe your parents uh, were, were quote-unquote good Christian people. Maybe your grandparents were missionaries to China. And you have been uh, raised inside this mindset that you're now haunted by the questions of if you read your Bible enough, if you're praying enough, if you give enough, if you help the homeless enough, if you come to church enough. And you live with this nagging sense that in the eternal scales of justice, you're found wanting and you live with this guilt that you're just not doing enough. And so every day you try to do one more thing. Every day you try to get something else done. And, and, and yet at the end of every day, you sit down and you say, I just wasn't good enough today. Maybe tomorrow. I'll just try harder tomorrow. I'm going to try harder today. And, and every day you, you wake up in the morning and you say, thank God I haven't sinned yet. And then you realize you just got arrogant. And so you spend the next five minutes trying to repent hard enough from your arrogance. And, and, then, and then you realize that you're not repenting good enough. And so you, maybe that's you. On the other hand, maybe you've given up on being good enough and you're just medicating your fear and your guilt with pride. Your goal is not to live up to God's standards. It's just to be better than the people around you. You see, uh, C.S. Lewis got it right that pride is essentially competitive. Pride takes no pleasure in being smart, only in being smarter. Pride takes no pleasure in being good-looking, only in being better-looking than so-and-so. And so maybe you spend, uh, you're here and you spend... Um, and in your head, you continually refrain to God. You continually uh, pad your own ego with things like, I know I'm not perfect, but I pray more than my husband. I come to church. I at least own a Bible. I go to Bible study, unlike those other people who call them Christians. You're better than they are, even if they do make some, even if you do make some mistakes. At least that's what you tell yourself to make yourself feel better about the nagging suspicion that you cannot even meet your own standards, nevertheless, God's. Well, Martin Luther, Martin Luther knew that he lived in perpetual fear of God's judgment because in his soul he was honest enough to know that he had made enough mistakes to merit God's disfavor that if he were his own daddy he would not be pumped and he was petrified with this and so he he did what the church told him to do what his uh, brothers told him to do and then maybe the best thing that ever happened to Martin Luther he was assigned to teach the Bible. He was given a job as a professor of Bible at Wittenberg College, and there he started doing something revolutionary, novel, ingenious. He decided to read the book. He decided to like sit down and to, to wrestle through this. And he first started teaching from the book of Psalms and he taught through that in, in 1512. And then he taught through uh, the, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans and then he taught through Paul's letter to the Galatians and then he circled back and taught uh, Psalms again. And there as he studied the word of God, it changed his life. It changed his life. I remember having the exact same experience when I was 16 years old. 16 years old, born and raised in the church. I mean, I don't know if I was born in the church, but mom was probably in church when she went into labor. Um, 
And I'd heard the Bible. I'd had a Bible since I was, since before I knew how to read, since they were just black markings on a white sheet of paper, perfect for coloring in. And yet when I'm 16 years old, I've been a Christian for two years and I have this novel idea. I remember laying in my bed one night, can't fall asleep, and I think, man, you know what? I'm gonna read the Bible. And I remember it was like novel, like no one in the world had ever told me to do that. Like I was the smartest guy to ever live. So Martin Luther reads the Bible and it changes his life. Let me read to you in his own words what happened to him. Um, he says this, he says, uh, he says, though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that God was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love Yes, I hated the righteousness of God who punishes sinners and secretly, and if not blasphemously, certainly murmured greatly. I was angry with God. I said, if indeed it is not enough that miserable sinners eternally lost through original sin are cursed by every kind of calamity by the law of the Decalogue without having God to add pain by the gospel, also by the gospel threatening us with righteousness and wrath. And so I raged with a fierce and a troubled conscience. And then he says this. He said, at last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the Bible. And I saw these words, in the righteousness, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed as it is written. He who through faith is righteous shall live. And there I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by gift of God, namely through faith. And this is the meaning. The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which God mercifully justifies us by faith. Here I felt that I was altogether born again and I had entered paradise itself through open gates and the scripture showed itself to me, an entirely other face of the scripture. And thereupon I sat and I started to think through scripture and I found that it was better than I had realized before. He sits there and he's meditating on it and in that moment God shows him that God's righteousness is not something he has to earn by being um, good enough, by trying hard enough, by white knuckling enough or by crying enough. He doesn't have to be sorry enough to earn God's favor. He couldn't do that if he wanted to. He didn't have to be good enough to earn God's righteousness. He couldn't do that if he wanted to. And, he, and so that God's righteousness is a gift given to him by Jesus Christ and he says I felt that I was altogether born again and I had entered paradise itself through open gates so let me ask you guys do you want that kind of transformation do you want transformation do you want to have your life transformed from guilt to acceptance from comparison to contentment from fear to serenity from failure to forgiveness from brokenness to wholeness from striving to resting from the spiritual treadmill to the spiritual hammock from the rat race to real rest from life as a tryout for heaven to life as an adventure with God from addiction to liberation from, oh man, this is really messing up my time, man. I, I was on a roll. From depression to joy, from craving others' approval to build my self-confidence to the self-confidence and the esteem that comes from the approval of God. From a meaningless life to a life worth, a mission worth your whole life. From victim to victory. From wondering about God to knowing God personally. From getting by to thriving 
from churchianity to Christianity, from law to gospel, from morality to grace. Do you want that kind of transformation? Do you want to see your life turned inside out? Is good enough not good enough anymore? Is good enough nagging you with the suspicion that you ain't good enough? Do you constantly find yourself asking the question, how good a Christian do I have to be to be a Christian? Well, transformation is a possibility. In fact, if you let Jesus into your life, it is a reality. Anything is possible with God. Transformation is a promise with God. When it When it comes to God, everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. The angel, when she comes to announce that Jesus is coming in the first place, says this. The angel says to Mary, is anything too difficult for God? Is there anything in the whole world that is too difficult for God? And the answer is no, that what is possible with human effort is possible for God. Lazy people, our society says over and over again, we live in a world that says people do not change. Lazy people stay lazy, greedy people stay greedy, and racist people stay racist. You've heard that on the news over the last few months again and again. But Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. Transformation is possible. Jesus wants to completely renovate your life and not just give you a little help so that you can just be a slightly better version of yourself. Like Jesus isn't just into like making, I don't know, Fred 2.0. Like he wants to make a whole new you and transform you into a person that you'd hardly recognize today. But friends all transformation, all hope of transformation that we have will be through reformation. It will be through reformation. To be transformed, we will have to be reformed, reformed to the image of God, which was lost in the fall, reformed to the gospel, which gives shape to our life. And true transformation will not come to your life through trying harder or through a little bit better fitness program. True transformation will not come through a new philosophy or a new author or the latest Oprah Winfrey bestseller or through a Dr. Phil life tip. Transformation will not come from a list of 20 life hacks on BuzzFeed. It will only come from a turning to the heart of the gospel, which is the bedrock of all of creation, which is the most fundamental below the fundamental reality of the universe, both individually and corporately, both as a person and as a whole church, all hope that we have of being transformed, all hope we have of being made new is not an innovation, but is in reclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what is that gospel? What is the gospel that Martin Luther discovered in 1517 and he spent the rest of his life preaching? What is the gospel that can transform you and me? The gospel is simply this. If you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. I'll give you two equations. There's only two options. First one, the gospel is Jesus plus sign, nothing, equal sign, everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. That's the gospel. That's the gospel in shorthand. That's gospel in mathematical notation. The gospel is this, that you and I were so lost that we could not save ourselves, that when it comes to God, we bring God nothing of value that God did not already give us. The faith I have was a gift of God. The image of God that I bear was a gift of God, that God gave it to me. And that when I come back to him, I'm always bringing borrowed money to him. I'm bringing him back to him what is already his, that I come and I claim Jesus alone's death on the cross alone is good enough for me. And there's nothing else to this. 
The way that you can know whether that is what you believe in your heart or not may just be to ask this question. If you're standing before the Lord right now and he says, why should we be in a relationship? Why should I let you into heaven as most of you think? What do you say back to him? What do you say back to him? If the words are, I tried to live a good life, then you don't believe the gospel. You believe that you've lived a good enough life. That is the anti-gospel because your life cannot be good enough. My life is not good enough. If, the, if, I, if it says, well, I, I went to church every week or I read my Bible every week or um, because, no, I'm here. I get relationship with God because of Christ alone on the cross. I get relationship with God because um, Jesus died for me. And so that plus nothing equals everything. If I try to add anything to it, then I rob the whole thing. If I try to add anything to the gospel, it falls apart. So the second equation is Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. This is the anti-gospel that Paul is so upset about in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 10. You cannot add to Jesus. The cross is either good enough or it's not good enough, but it doesn't need any supplementation. In this moment, in, in, in Paul's gospel, I mean, in Paul's letter here, what was being added is that you have to have faith in Jesus. You have to have faith in Jesus' death on the cross and you have to be circumcised. If you don't know what circumcision is, go home, talk to your parents. They'll pull out diagrams and show it all to you and, and, and explain it all to you. Um, and the if you if you don't have if you're not circumcised and you don't have real faith if you if you haven't been circumcised uh, then you're not actually a Christian. That you have to have faith and circumcision. And Paul says if you add that to it later in the letter, he says if you let yourself be circumcised because your conscience is guilty and you think being circumcised will make you right with God, then you are not a Christian and you are damned. He says you are cut off from Christ just like your foreskin has now been cut off. And so friends, if we make Christianity something like you have to have faith and faith and go to church, faith and be baptized, faith and read your Bible every day, faith and, then I have robbed Christianity of its good newsness because Christianity is not about being about Jesus and it's just about Jesus. From beginning to end, it's just about Jesus, his death on the cross, his grace that saved me when I was unsavable. Let me give you three illustrations to show you what I think might illustrate how, how helpless I am to do anything to help Jesus save me. Like, I don't help Jesus save me at all. He just saves me. Even my faith is just surrender. It's just letting myself be hugged. Three illustrations. The Bible uses these. I'm going to kind of update them a little bit and give you an illustration. The first, uh, when I was a kid, there was a creek behind my house. It was just a sewer creek, so I'm sure it was really healthy to play in. Um, but it was a creek. And so we'd go back there all the time, and we always got for like every birthday, for every Christmas, for Easter, we got a brand new set of muck boots because we would wear out muck boots in a hurry. But we'd go back and play in this creek. And I can remember one day we found this incredible patch of that really tar-like black clay. You know, the, not the, the stuff that's like slime, and it sticks to everything and the neighborhood kids are back there and we're playing in it and, and we're tackling each other in it and we're rolling in it and we get out of the creek and we start to head home and we are filthy and everything we touch is filthy every time you can see where we walk through the woods because the trees are black with mud and we get home and we realize we got to get clean before we go in the house and so you've got six kids trying to clean one another do you know what happened the driveway was black and we were black and the hose was black and the hose was clogged and the mud is now not on the outside of the boots, it's in the boots. It's not just on my pants, it's, it's everywhere. And I could not clean myself. 
and we couldn't clean ourselves at all and we also couldn't go into the house until we got clean. Do you see the dilemma? So what happened? Well, mom came home and she hosed us off like zoo animals. Someone had to come and clean me from the outside who was not dirty, who had no filth of their own because me covered in filth could not clean myself. When it comes to coming to God, you and I are so covered in sin that everything we touch gets infected with it and so we can't clean ourselves. Someone who does not have sin of their own has to come and clean us from the outside in. And so Jesus comes into creation and he cleans me and you know what I do? Just stand there and let him do it. And every time I try to help him clean me, you know what happens? I get more messy. If I just let him do the work of transforming me, I get clean. Second, so we talk about clean, and second illustration I want to talk about is debt. Debt, I was talking to somebody uh, recently, and they just, this is going to sound crazy. Uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, and they have $80,000 in credit card debt. That's a heap ton of debt, Right? It's a whole heap ton of debt. Some of you know that reality too well, and this is not to mock you at all. We would love to help you get out of debt. God wants you to be out of debt, and there are ways to do that, and we can help. Uh, we can share testimonies of that. But I was talking to this person, and they said they had $80,000 80, in debt. They did. Would they get out of debt if they just opened another line of credit, like a home equity line, to pay off their $80,000 in credit card debt? Would, would that get them out of debt? No, you just borrowed money to pay off borrowed money. You're still in debt. In fact, you very well might be in more debt if you uh, had one bad loan and you had to get a worse loan to pay off the first loan. Well, when we try to, to take, we know we've done wrong, we know we've messed up, we know we have um, hurt God and hurt others and hurt ourselves. When we try to uh, somehow balance the scales by doing good things, when we try to pay off sin with good works, all we are doing is paying off sin with sin. Do you know how well that works? About like paying off one credit card with another credit card. It doesn't go away. You just camouflaged it a little bit. You just uh, embezzled money from yourself. You're still broke. And so I need Christ to come in his incredible uh, love and charity and pay off my debt to God. My debt of death, Jesus dies and pays on the cross. And you know what I have to give to him? Borrowed money. Do you know how much borrowed money helps my debt? Zero. He pays it all. And lastly, the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. When I was a, a chaplain in the hospital, uh, one of the, the things I got to do regularly at the UNC Hospital in Chapel Hill, um, no hissing, uh, we would go, and uh, the chaplains were responsible for going to every code. So every time somebody's heart stopped in the hospital, a chaplain would show up. Sometimes to minister to that person in their last moments if they were resuscitated but weren't going to live. Um, but often just to minister to the family. But we were also CPR certified. And so often we would have to um, rotate in if somebody was being worked on for a long time uh, giving CPR. The Bible says that you were dead. Do you know how much a dead person has ever helped me perform CPR on them? None, not a lick. Do you know how much they fought, like doctors healing them? A ton. Now, dead people don't, like, they just lay there. They can't do anything to save themselves. They can't do anything to resuscitate themselves. They can't do anything. It has to be done by somebody outside of them. And you and I, spiritually, spiritually speaking, I am a corpse on a table apart from Christ. Apart from the love of Christ pounding on my chest and trying to revive me, I am a corpse. And I can do nothing. I cannot choose God unless God revives me enough to choose him. I can't say, do you consent to having CPR done? Can't even do that. 
Do you consent to being saved by Jesus? I can't do that until he's after he's already revived me enough to have a spirit that's awake enough to say, thank you for saving me. Yes, uh, would you keep doing what you're doing because it's, it's helping. It hurts, but it's, I, I like this better than the alternative. Friends, that is the gospel. And that is the, the truth of it. And apart from this, apart from the gospel, there is nothing else to talk about. This is the story that all of it hangs on. This is the doctrine that changed the world in the first century and in the 16th century. This is the gospel. And we repeat it as a church. We repeat it and we repeat it and we repeat it and we repeat it. We never move on from this. This is not the ABC of Christianity. This isn't the introduction to Christianity. This is the whole story. And I don't have to, every time we talk about something else, we're just talking about this. And if we don't go back to this on everything we're not doing anything so I don't need to stand up here even though we're right in the middle of a planned giving season and we've asked you to tell us how much money you're going to um, give back to God next year I don't have to preach a sermon on giving money I preach a sermon on the gospel because if you understand the gospel then you realize you came to God with nothing everything in your life every last breath in your lung every last dollar in the bank account every last brick in your house you didn't earn it you didn't do anything to hit that you paid for it with money that you got at a job. Well, how'd you get your job? Well, you're talented. Where'd you get your talents from? Jesus. Like, you live in this country. Why? Because your parents were born here. Why? Because Jesus determines the place and the people where they'll live and the times and places they'll live. And so, if we get the gospel, we'll be generous people. So I don't have to up here and implore you to be generous and tell you to be generous. I'd just come here and say, if you're not generous, then you're not grateful. And if you're not grateful, it's because you haven't understood grace. And so what you need is grace, not generosity. Dead people give money away all the time because you can't take any of it when you go. It doesn't make them generous. Gratitude makes us generous, and gratitude comes from the gospel. And so we've got to be reformed to this idea that we bring nothing to God except empty hands and a broken heart and say, God, help me, fix me, use me. And even when I pray that prayer, that prayer is a gift from God that proves that God is already at work in my heart. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm reminded of the words that Martin Luther wrote um, about uh, your love, um, that you, my king, would die for me. Amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me. I'm amazed again at your love, that you're reviving us, you're using us, you're transforming the world through us by your grace, for your glory alone. And so when we stand here and we say, I'm a Christian, thank God, because I can't thank me. I didn't, I'm not smart enough to make the right decision in this moment unless you grace me with that decision. But I believe right now you are gracing people with the wisdom to see their own sin, to wisdom to see the consequence of that sin is eternal separation from you and the, the understanding that because of Jesus dying on a cross, not because they're good enough, smart enough, beautiful enough, not because they're sorry enough or religious enough, not because they've been to church enough, but just because of Jesus, they can be reconnected with you right now, right now. They don't have to wait for heaven they can enjoy full life, abundant life with you right now. And if that's you, if that's you right now, you have realized you got nothing. You can bring your nothing to Jesus. So I invite you to bring your nothing to Jesus right now. And say, Jesus, I got nothing. But I hear that you've promised me everything. Want to trade? 
I guarantee you Jesus will make that trade because he already did and he's just waiting on you to realize it and to start living like the gospel's true. You can pray a simple prayer like this. Jesus, I've been making a mess of my life and living on borrowed time and borrowed money but I see that you loved me enough to die for me and so I commit to following you for the rest of my life. I trust you to cleanse me of my sins and to reconnect me to God. In Jesus' name, amen. Because God's given us everything we got, not out of obligation, but out of gratitude, out of incredible thankfulness for what God's done in our lives, I invite you to worship God now through your tithes and your offerings. If you're here for the first time, we don't want your money. We wouldn't invite you to our house and then hand you the electric bill to pay it but we would like to pray for you and ask if you'd fill out a you're welcome here card, we would commit to praying for you this week. Let us worship God.